Luke chapter 24. We'll begin at verse 27. We'll just add one verse before to remind uh, ourselves what Jesus is doing here on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, verse 27, uh, reading through verse 35. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good, that we may be built up in the faith and encouraged that he might do his work in us. Let us give our attention uh, to its reading. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. After I finish this passage, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. You can respond with thanks be to God. Luke Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A natural way to get to know someone better is to share a meal with them. Dates, business meetings, family reunions often will primarily revolve around a table and a meal. There's a lot going on. We gather around the table for a meal. Recent studies have shown the importance of regular family meals throughout the course of the week. And in our age, as the family comes under more and more scrutiny and stress, this is an important way that families, and I believe certainly Christian families, can grow together. We learn about one another and continue learning about one another. We truly love and we care for each other around the table. People are fed physically and emotionally. Shared meals draw people together in undeniable and important ways. The knowledge of our Savior is also tied to a meal, as we know. Not a natural meal, but a supernatural one. And in this passage, Jesus gives us a a glimpse of our covenant meal in the age of resurrection life. And it's cast in the midst of where Luke is continuously giving for us uh, the nature of resurrection faith. What, what is faith in the risen Lord? What does it look like and how does it act? Our life-transforming reality is this. God, by his sovereign grace, gives a saving knowledge of and a trust in Jesus Christ in word and sacrament. 
So in this age of faith, we must give ourselves to these things, knowing that God, in his sovereignty, can take a burning and a restless soul and point them to their only possible source of true rest, true contentment, which is Christ our Savior. First, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus is a guest worth detaining. Jesus is a guest worth detaining. Of course, last week on the road to Emmaus, Jesus interacted with these two disciples who were dejected. They left Jerusalem with a a sadness. This is the afternoon and and evening of Resurrection Day, the the day that Jesus was risen from the dead. And uh, Jesus has, while he's remained unrecognized by these two disciples, he has opened up to them the scriptures in this certainly wonderful and magnificent sermon, which the specifics of which we don't have recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. We reminded ourselves that it's so important to hear this pattern recounted for us, that the Messiah was to suffer. We remember that this is what these disciples are struggling with. A suffering Messiah. A a Messiah who dies on a Roman cross. Unfathomable to them. So we need this recounted for us day after day and week after week that our Savior has conquered through death. These disciples are slow of heart to believe. Even after this sermon, they still have not recognized Jesus. Something's going on, though. We read that uh, later on they will realize their hearts were burning within them as this was going on. I have a close friend who recently uh, defended his PhD dissertation, sort of been leading up to that for about four or five years. And you can imagine the kind of toilsome work that it involved. And, And he said that once he got the word in that room that he had passed, he had successfully defended uh, what he had been working on. So that that feeling of euphoria was indeed hard to describe, but he wasn't able to, to realize until after the fact how much his heart was burning to have the project done and finished. Similarly, these disciples Uh, they will realize after they see the risen Christ, after they recognize him, they'll realize how much their hearts were burning within them. It's interesting, isn't it, that as they approach the end of their destination, the village to which they're going, Emmaus, that we read that Jesus pretends to be going on farther. In other words, Jesus is encouraging an invitation to stay. Really interesting that Jesus pretends that he's going farther here. This is a reminder that oftentimes what what God is doing in our life, he knows what's in our mind, what's in our hearts, he knows the strength and the nature of our faith, but he uses means to bring that out to reveal it to us. C.S. Lewis was famous for saying that trials, in so much as they are a, a test of our faith, it's not as if God is curious to find out what our faith is made of. He knows what our faith is made of. It's more about things like trials in our life that he brings into our life. That's more about revealing to us what our faith is like. It's either weak or it's strong. It may be a house of cards or we may have a solid faith that is indeed even stronger than we realize. And God uses that to reveal that to us. So these disciples then, Jesus in his sovereignty is revealing to them 
the level of their curiosity, the, the, the burning heart that they have to know and to arrive at the truth. So they invite Jesus in. And this act of hospitality sets us up for a, a positive expectation. There's a bit of an irony here, isn't there, that uh, Jesus is the one who has just defeated death. Uh, he is entering his glory. Uh, death no longer has any mastery over him. So there's an irony here that it seems like the disciples say, look, the day is almost over. You can't travel at night. You know, they didn't have street lights back then. They didn't have policemen patrolling the streets. And so you didn't travel at night. They're saying it's dangerous. You can't continue traveling on this late in the day. Right? No common thief is a threat to Jesus. No, no wild animal is a threat to Jesus. This is the Lord who has conquered sin and death and is alive forevermore. But it sets us up for a positive expectation in this showing of hospitality. Sharing a meal with Jesus has been a constant theme in Luke. Dining with the king as a picture of salvation, that uh, those who are made alive in Christ, those who trust in his work, uh, there is a, a sense that you are brought to the banqueting table of the Lord. You dine with him. You get to know him more. Jesus gives blessing at the dinner table throughout the gospel of Luke. Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus in and Jesus says salvation has come to this house. The dinner table in chapter 7, the woman anoints Jesus' feet with oil and she's crying over her Savior, over love and devotion to him. Jesus says to this woman, your faith has saved you. So it sets us up for a positive expectation, this showing of hospitality As they gather around the dinner table, we expect that the blessing of Jesus will pour forth. Indeed, this goes far beyond the expectation of what these disciples could have ever known or wanted. Supremacy of Jesus Christ who will will give them a rest and a contentment that is better, far better than any other guest could have given him. Indeed, he is a guest that is worth detaining. The hospitality that they show is is analogous to the heart that sees Christ as Lord. He comes into our lives and he shows himself to be Lord and sovereign and better indeed than we could have imagined. So Jesus is a guest worth detaining, constraining, come in, don't keep going, come in with us. Not only do we see that, we see in verses 30 and 31, a liturgy worth repeating A liturgy worth repeating. The strange thing that happens in verses 30 and 31 is that proper etiquette is transgressed here. You go over to a house of another family. If you're the guest, you won't be sitting in the living room before dinner time and you see the food, the tables start to be set, the food is all laid out. If you're the guest, you're not going to say, okay, let's head into the dining room, everyone take your seat, it's time to eat. The guest doesn't do that, The, the host does that. If you're sitting down at the table, if you're the guest, you're not going to blurt out, okay, I'll pray, and then I'll slice the roast, and we'll pass it around, and then we can all eat together. That's not what the guest does. That's what the host does. Jesus is invited in, but in the course of just one verse here, he goes from guest to host. They thought that they were showing hospitality to a traveler in need, but uh, these two disciples are about to become hosts at one of the high points of our Lord's ministry. The same is true of us. same is true in our lives, right? When Jesus is Lord of our lives, he is never a guest. He is never a guest. He is always Lord and he is always sovereign. 
Phil Riken, in his commentary to this gospel, the gospel of Luke, thinking about this passage, just think about Jesus in Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God, the one who is preeminent over all things, the, the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created. All things hold together in him. Isn't he powerful enough to have first place in all of our lives, every place in life? He stretches it out, the picture, not just in the dining room, but the the living room and the workplace. Jesus is Lord. He is not a guest in our lives. He is the sovereign Lord. But textually, there are some important connections we need to draw here. This meal that goes on in verses 30 and 31. There are two other important meals in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is the host. Just three. Three meals that Jesus hosts in the Gospel of Luke. The most recent one, uh, excluding this one, the most recent one is, of course, the Last Supper. The Last Supper with the Twelve. And we know that the Last Supper has strong connections to the Lord's Supper. So scholars puzzle over this question. Is this the, the first occurrence of the Lord's Supper, of the Sacrament of Communion? I really think that that kind of question misses the point. It really can't be, right? Because that would only happen after Pentecost, after the the new covenant church has been rightly constituted in, in its proper way. But of course, there are extremely strong connections to both the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper. And we know that because Jesus uses the exact liturgy here that he used in the Last Supper. He takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it. Luke very intentionally wants to make those connections for us. Jesus takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it. The Last Supper was about showing us the eternal salvation that Jesus was going to accomplish. And it it shows us the picture of salvation by grace. Jesus says, I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to do it for you, and I'm going to give it to you. Salvation by grace, it's a gift It's given to you. It's not accomplished by ourselves. But there's another meal that Jesus hosts in the Gospel of Luke. It's all the way back in chapter 9. The feeding of the 5,000. And Luke connects us to that by using the exact same liturgy there as well. Jesus takes bread. He gives thanks. He breaks it. And he gives it. There's connection between these three meals. What do we do with that? Well, in the feeding of the 5,000, we see that Jesus is the Messiah who becomes the bread of heaven. He is the one who provides for salvation in the wilderness of this world. Remember, the people, there's no food around, and they're, they're starting to become hungry. But there is one who rises up in the desert, in the wilderness, who gives them that which their bodies need to signify for us that Jesus is the only one. You think of of all the other ways of trying to get to God, all the other paths that one may walk. What is it? It's a desert. It's not going to satisfy the longing soul. Only Jesus can do that. There's that picture, the feeding of the 5,000. He rises up in the midst of the wilderness where everything else is barren and dry. He says, I'm the one who gives you the bread of heaven. I'm the one who can give you that which you need. He fulfills for us in that picture of being in the wilderness, Isaiah 35, the prophecy which says, the wilderness and the the dry land will be glad and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy. 
and singing. Jesus fulfills for us Psalm 107, verse 4. He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Nothing can satisfy our soul. Nothing can meet our needs in this way, in terms of salvation, except Jesus Christ. We see that in the liturgies that he gives, in the meals that he hosts. Two more conclusions that we can draw as we see this unfold in verses 30 and 31. The first is that Jesus has inaugurated a new stage of the kingdom of God. And that is that of the new covenant and his own resurrection rule. The the life of the kingdom of God is now known and marked by Christ's resurrection. And the explicit life, the, the mystery of God's will that's made known in him. Jesus has inaugurated that. You think back to the Last Supper, chapter 22. Verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And what's Jesus doing here? He's breaking that fast. He is eating once again the bread. He will said he will not eat it again until it is fulfilled. So Jesus, by his work on the cross, fulfills the Passover. What is the Passover? In Egypt, where the Israelites place their blood over the doors of their home, and the wrath of God passes over those houses where the blood of the lamb had been spilled. Jesus fulfills that for us with that core message of the gospel, that those who are covered with the blood of the lamb, God's wrath is turned away from you. Your sins have been atoned for and the wrath of God is turned away from you. It no longer rests on you. You're no longer at enmity with God. Jesus has fulfilled that for us. These new covenant blessings now, as the kingdom of God is marked by the resurrection life of Christ, it can flow far as the curse is found. He's inaugurated that new stage, the kingdom of God. But another thing that he points us to is how saving faith in Jesus Christ will be nourished and sustained in this age of faith. In the midst of the futility of our faith, which is sometimes weaker than other times, which is not stable and steadfast because we are not stable and steadfast, he gives us this picture through this meal. How will faith in Christ, resurrection faith, How will it be sustained until our Lord comes again? What's fascinating here in this meal, verse 31, is we read their eyes were open, their eyes were opened, and they recognize Jesus. They finally see him and they see who he is. He is known to them in the breaking of the bread. They realize that this is the one who gave his body for the life of the world. And now they see. It says their eyes are opened. If you can think back to last week when we thought through that, uh, the passage there, their eyes were kept closed. Their eyes were blinded to the reality of who Christ was. And there we saw that that was a divine passive verb. Oftentimes in the scriptures you see a, pa- a verb in the passive voice. It's implying the activity of God. And here it's the same thing. Their eyes were opened. Opened by whom? By God in his sovereign grace. Why? Because the Lord is the one who opens the eyes of the blind. 
This is a promise of who he is. This is what he does. He saves in his sovereign grace. That's from Psalm 146, a psalm that we love to sing here. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. How does it occur in that song? He makes the sightless eye to see. He saves by his sovereign grace. Psalm 119 says this, Open my eyes, O Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. This points us forward. It's not, as I said, it's not an exact replica. This isn't the first occurrence of communion or the Lord's Supper, but it's pointing us forward to that. It's reminding us of those realities, and it's showing us how our faith is sustained in this, in this age. How is it? God's sovereign grace acting in word and in sacrament, in word and in sacrament. Of course, there are differences here. These are two disciples who have yet to believe uh, the resurrection, who have yet to place their faith in the risen Christ. And certainly the church today does not allow non-believers to come to the table in the hopes that they will believe in Christ. It's a place for believers in Jesus only. But it shows us How it is that God, as a sovereign God, a sovereign God who is gracious, how does he impart saving faith and how does he sustain saving faith? As Jesus proclaims this word, he opens the scriptures to them and then he has it accompanied with a visible word. We read in our confession, certainly as we receive and hold the sacrament in our hands and eat and drink the same with our mouths, we also do as certainly receive by faith Christ our Savior for the support of our spiritual life. The sacraments show us physically what God already declares to us in his word. So the application for that principle for us today is that a sovereign God who saves by grace, he has promised to bless his people, and to bless his church as they attend to the things where he has said, this is where I will act. This is where I will bless my people, where I will gather them unto myself, where the preaching of the word and the sacraments that he has given to us. These are the the marching orders of the church. Reminds us that as Christians, we, we cannot pretend to be wiser than God. We cannot think that we should invent new ways of giving the realities of Christ and the gift of faith to his people because who is the one who gives it? God was the one who had closed their eyes. God is the one who opens their eyes. He opens their eyes through the gospel, through the proclamation of Christ and through the sacraments that are given in addition to it. These are the marching orders of the church. We read in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, go, Go into all the world, preach the gospel and baptize, word and sacrament. Through that, you will teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Disciples are made, disciples are made in the church when God's people lean into the regular and ordinary means of grace. God's saying, this is where I promised to act. This is where I have promised to bless. For we remember that without God revealing His truth to a dead heart we would not believe. And it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. You think about what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, my prayer is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. He doesn't say, my prayer is that you would enlighten 
the eyes of your heart yourselves. My prayer is that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. In other words, that God would work on you. And that's a, that's a prayer that he prays about believers. That God would continue enlightening the eyes of your heart. Because we need that ongoing blessing of God in divine grace through the word and through his sacraments. Paul says, I pray that your heart would be enlightened. That you would know the hope to which he has called you. That you would know the glorious inheritance that he has given you. And that you would know the power that is working in you. Which is the resurrection life of Christ. It's a liturgy worth repeating. Why? Because this is where God has promised to act and to bless. Are we leaning into the things that God has said here? I will bless you. Here I will communicate to you the grace of faith. Lastly then, the last four verses of our passage, burning hearts and returning disciples. Burning hearts and returning disciples. It's a bit jolting, isn't it? That at the end of verse 31, their eyes are opened and the first thing that happens is that Jesus disappears. Instantly, he is gone. They are not allowed to revel in the fact that this is Jesus and they now have beheld him. Why? Because Luke is impressing upon us faith In the church age. Faith in the church age. See, Jesus disappears, but they're not hugely disappointed, are they? He disappears, but the the, the real issue is that they continue to live as if Jesus is right there. Because they're living in light of the resurrection. And the resurrection has transformed the way that they live. The life of Christ, the new covenant, have all been inaugurated And so they show us that this is not the age of sight. This is the age of faith. Not the age of sight, it's the age of faith. It's exactly what is shown to us in Hebrews chapter 2, which says we see Jesus. But what the author is saying there is that we see Jesus with the eyes of of our hearts. We don't see Jesus with the eyes in our heads. Hebrews 2 verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus with the eyes of faith. So these two disciples they left Jerusalem completely dejected didn't they? They're now going to go back to Jerusalem, to that center place of God's activity, his saving activity. And when these disciples leave Jerusalem again, it's not going to be with sadness and dejection. Because they're going to live with resurrection faith, with a a transformed mind and a transformed heart. What's interesting is how much it's transformed the way that they act. Remember, they told Jesus, the, the day is almost over you can't travel anymore and here it is evening it's probably almost certainly dark by now and now they're running back to Jerusalem they're doing the exact thing that they told Jesus he couldn't do before they had recognized him so they go back to Jerusalem when they were still unaware that it was Jesus their hearts were burning with a desire to know the truth but now what is going on their hearts are aflame with a warmth and a comfort and a rest in Christ they're living in the the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus they do not have a burning of uncertainty they have a warmth of understanding and salvation that Christ brings John Wesley described his own grasp of of the gospel 
And he put it this way. Uh, the first time he understood how his salvation was won by Christ. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. And he had saved me from the law of sin and death. There's this confidence that comes through placing your faith in the risen and exalted Christ. And these disciples will now forever live. They will forever live in the confidence of the empty tomb. The confidence in the risen Lord. Confidence. From the Latin confide. With faith. They will live with faith. So they run back to Jerusalem. And they see that the eleven are already assembled. They've come to know the truth about Jesus. So this of course is the, the first Lord's Day evening worship. After the resurrection of Christ. They're assembled together. The eleven have come to know the truth. They should have believed the women, of course. They should have believed the women. Women were telling the truth and God had revealed that to them. Now they're saying, uh, the Lord has appeared to Simon. It is indeed true. We're going to see how much the resurrection transforms their outlook. I'm going to see in uh, the volume of Acts that Luke writes how much the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost transforms their ability to see the suffering Messiah in all of the scriptures and transforms their ability to live in the boldness and confidence of the Lord. And these are things that we all have now, brothers and sisters. Knowledge of the risen and exalted Christ. The Holy Spirit given to dwell in us as the temple of God to work with us, to encourage and to open our minds to the scriptures. And we have the promise of God's blessing in word and in sacrament. Our hearts need not burn with the restlessness of wondering where the true answer lies, but by faith we have the warmth of confidence in our risen and exalted Savior. Christ shows himself to his people in the preached word of the gospel. He shows himself to us in the visible word of his sacraments. This is where God has promised to act. He makes the sightless eye to see. If you've never seen the risen Christ at the eyes of faith, pray that God would open the eyes of your heart. That's a prayer he loves to answer. Only he can give it. Only he can give it. But he loves to answer. Cling to Christ and never let him grow. Never let him go. Perhaps you've seen your love, your zeal for the Lord grow cold over the past weeks or months or years. You ask yourself, where will you find renewed trust, renewed confidence, renewed zeal and devotion for the Lord? You will find it in his word and in the sacraments. Give yourself to the means of grace where God says, here is where I've promised to act. Here is where I have promised to bless my people. It may not be fancy in the eyes of the world, but it's truly all that we need for our pilgrim faith. Don't need to invent new ways. God has promised to act here and to bless and to feed and to nourish our souls. He is a guest worth detaining. Indeed, it is a liturgy worth repeating. Let your heart be his home. Trust him, love him, and serve him all of your days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise and adoration. We thank you for this word. We pray that you will 
Bless us as we attend to those things where you have promised to act and to build up your people. We pray that by your spirit, then you would do just that. Now in these moments, in this place, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.